Good morning. This morning's scripture is from, I'm guessing, Matthew yeah. 31 through 46. Yeah. When he finally arrives, blazing in beauty and all his angels with him, the Son of Man will take his place on his glorious throne. Then all the nations will be arranged before him, and he will sort the people out, much as a shepherd sorts out sheep and goats, putting sheep to his right and goats to his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Enter, you who are blessed by my Father. Take what's coming to you in this kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation, and here's why. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was homeless, and you gave me a room. I was shivering, and you gave me clothes. I was sick, and you stopped to visit. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then those sheep are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you a drink? And when do we ever see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will say, I am telling the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. Then he will turn to the goats, the ones on his left, and say, Get out, worthless goats. You're good for nothing but the fires of hell. And why? Because I was hungry, and you gave me no meal. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was homeless, and you gave me no bed. I was shivering, and you gave me no clothes. Sick and in prison, and you never visited. Then those goats are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or homeless or shivering or sick or in prison and didn't help? He will answer them, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you failed to do one of these things to someone who was being overlooked or ignored, that was me. You failed to do it to me. Then those goats will be herded to their eternal doom, but the sheep to their eternal reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, that was a lovely little image, wasn't it? Thoughts about that scripture? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. No, I got it. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not there now, though. Yes. That's right. God's inside all of us, even the people we don't like. That's right. Oh, that's right. That hurts. Yes. Yeah. It's beautiful. The whole notion of separating the goats and separating them out is just Yeah. Yeah. It can be off putting for sure. Anyone else? Yes. It seems like such a false binary, right? Mm. We have, we've been goats and sheep, so who's where we're going to be, right? That's right. Oh, that's good. Yeah. On any given day, we could be a sheep or a goat, right? <laughs> yep. So we did a series. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, that's what this fear came to me about. Yeah. It's like the whole idea 
No, it was perfectly okay. Yeah. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So we did a yes. Somebody, yes. That's good. Well, thank you, Ronnie. That was great. Yes. Yeah, adding to what Ronnie was saying. Yeah. We have to remember that in the Bible, God speaks to us through the lens of the society of the time. Mm-hmm. And the society of the time is very punitive. Yeah. They only understood good or bad. That's right. Right? Yeah. There had to be some kind of reason. Right. Yeah, that's We've good. Grown that, that's right. That's a good point. Thank you. So a, cu- a couple of years ago, we did a series, a teaching series on deconstruction. And one of the topics that we dealt with uh, in that series was hell. Is there a, he- is there a hell? So some of that's going to kind of overlap today, uh, but that's okay. We're going to do it with the Second Temple Judaism twist. So in May, ni- in May 2020, Time Magazine featured an article by one of my favorite scholars, Bart Ehrman, The article is, What Jesus Really Said About Heaven and Hell. May 2020. What was happening in May of 2020? Very timely article. What Jesus Really Said About Heaven and Hell. He cited a poll that said 72% of Americans believe in a literal heaven and 58% in a literal hell. And of course, with Ash Wednesday coming up in a couple of days, and by the way, please be there. If you, please be here if you can at 7 p.m. It's a really special time together, really meaningful, and I would love to see all of you there. So here's, this, here's, the, here's what I want to just put out on the table for all, okay? Whether or not you believe in a literal heaven or hell, it's okay. However you land on this. You're in a safe place to feel that way, to see, the, to see the Bible that way. One of our five tenets is generous orthodoxy. That can cover that too. Um, when I was, I've told this story so many times, y'all are going to get tired of hearing it, I know, but I'm going to tell it again. Um, when, I came, when I flew up here the, for the first time from Huntsville for my job interview, I brought my best friend Andy with me, best friends for 20 years, uh, I've been deconstructing for quite a while. She's still uh, a little bit more Southern Baptist-y. That's both of our backgrounds. I'm not so much anymore. We were having dinner that night, and there was somebody on the search team that was asking questions, and they referred to God as she. It didn't, it just, okay, we're having conversation. No biggie, right? This person asked me the question, this question, and I really bombed it. It was like the worst answer on the planet. I sounded like an idiot. We go back to the hotel room together, and that's all I can think of is like, uh, I'm never getting a call back. They're probably sorry they spent the money on me to bring me up here. What were you? Th- uh. 
did all that. So we get in the hotel room, and I'm spewing all this to Andy, and she's just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Her legs twitching. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm like, what? And she's like, you were fine. But I, she caught God a she. What? And I went, you don't really think God has a... I won't say it out loud for the children in the room. And she was like, well... Huh. Well, I... Hmm. And I just went like, okay... And she said, well, I don't want to talk about it anymore because the next thing that's going to come out of your mouth is you're going to say, and you don't believe in hell either. And I was like, well, she stop, 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 stop. <laughs> we can see it a lot of different ways, and it's okay. It is absolutely okay. But what I wanted to do, that, what I wanted to do today is talk about what the ancient Israelites believed about the afterlife. Because their thoughts, their... Um, their ideas about an afterlife evolved. In the beginning, um, in, during the first temple period, the Solomon Temple, the Hebrew Bible did not endorse the view that departed souls go to paradise or everlasting pain. The Hebrew Bible did not believe in an everlasting pain or a paradise. Back when I was in school doing my undergraduate in religious studies, uh, I was invited by one of my professors to do a paper on this idea. Uh, he knew how much it would rock my world, and my world needed to be rocked. And I learned then that the Jewish, the ancient Israelites, did not believe in heaven or hell. They believed that when you die, you're, you're dead. You're, you're in the ground. That's it. Um, they did not believe that the soul could exist from apart, apart from the body. That was a Greek notion. They didn't believe that. For them, the soul was more like breath. The first human God created, Adam, began as a lump of clay. Then God breathed life into him. And Adam remained alive until he stopped breathing. We say on Ash Wednesday, from ashes to ashes, to dust to dust, from dust you came to dust you shall return. The Hebrew Bible writers simply assume that the dead are, are dead, that their body lies in the grave, and that there is no consciousness ever again. But what about the scriptures that do speak of hell in the Hebrew Bible? I read one this morning from the Psalms. At the end it says, I give thanks to you, my Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever because your faithful love toward me is awesome and because you've rescued my life from the lowest part of hell. There are scriptures that speak of hell in the Hebrew Bible, but it's not Dante's hell that they're speaking of. They're speaking of something different. They're, think, they're, they're speaking of this idea of Sheol. Sheol meaning tomb or grave. It's not a place where someone actually goes. It's just... You're dead, and that's it. Now, there are, there are wonderful, brilliant, incredible scholars out there that see this differently, and that's fine. That, that's good. But I'm going to share with you what I've learned, and you can take it for all it's worth, okay? So Sheol is the abode of the dead in the Hebrew Bible. The term can be interpreted to be either a literal place in which dead people are placed 
or the ancient world's concept of the afterlife as a subterranean land of gloom and deep darkness, as Job, as Job says. But it's still, you're dead. For the ancient Israelites, this is why they developed such a, what we would consider probably, a dramatic way to mourn their dead with the sackcloth and the ashes and such. Because nothing could make an afterlife existence sweet since there was no life at all. Family, friends, none of that. No conversations, no food, no drink, no communion even with God. As Ehrman says, the most one could hope for was a good and particularly long life here and now. And when it was over, it was over. Now in our timeline, around 200 years before Jesus when we're in Second Temple Judaism, the Jewish way of thinking about the afterlife had shifted. Their cultural influences have changed. The Greeks now rule the world. And the Greeks had very different ideas about everything, everything from what the Jewish people believed. It kind of goes back to what you were saying, Cindy, the context that you're in. So this is where the Greeks, for one, believed that the soul lived on after our death which they did not, the Jewish people did not believe, but we would adopt that eventually. We would adopt that kind of idea lately. And this is where the book of Daniel's view on the afterlife comes in. And if you remember, if you've been following along with me on the timeline in Second Temple Judaism, Daniel is like written 164 years before Jesus was born. This is a very later text. It's close to the time of Jesus. But something's changed from the Psalms and Job. Now all of a sudden we're reading, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So all of a sudden there's a new view of the afterlife. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, be resurrected, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. But even though the Jewish idea of an afterlife shifted and evolved, it never involved a heaven with rewards or a hell with punishment. Never. As Ehrman says, Jews had long believed that God was Lord of the entire world and all people, both the living and the dead. But the problems with that thinking were palpable God's own people, Israel, continuously, painfully, and frustratingly suffered from natural disasters, political crisis, and most notably military defeat. If God loves His people and is sovereign over all the world, why do His people experience so much tragedy? It goes back to what we've been talking about the past two weeks. That's where demons come in. That's where Satan comes in. There has to be an explanation because, Lord, we are good people. A good friend of mine back in Huntsville, his wife was uh, diagnosed with Lewy body dementia and just watched her deteriorate. And I remember him saying to me, he was an ordained minister, he was retired. Her name um, was Lou. And he said to me, why did God allow this to happen to her? She did not deserve this. That kind of thinking about God is not right. There are many different ways to see things, but I don't think God sends us that kind of stuff. I think it's life. 
But if that's how you see God, then, okay, if you see God as God gave my wonderful, godly wife this horrible disease and she didn't deserve it, well, then who does deserve it? If she doesn't deserve it, then who does? Because that's what you're saying, right? Somebody deserves that. Well, who is that? You know, I don't want to be the one to make those kind of calls, right? They had to be a thing. Their, their, their thinking had changed because there needed to be justice. They had been treated so horribly. There had to be justice. There had to be balance. They were looking for God to break into their physical world and fix everything wrong, destroy their enemies, and they believed that it would happen in their lifetime. For those who have died, God will breathe life back into them, restoring them to earthly existence. In the time of Jesus, this was the idea that they would have had. God will bring them back from the dead, not only the righteous, but the unrighteous. Because think about this. If that's your system, that some people deserve it and some people don't, well, the people that have died and they were horrible human beings, they just got away with it, right? They just went on smiling down to the grave, got away with it scot-free. That can't be right. There has to be justice. There has to be. And so that developed this thinking of, this is what it will be. This is what will happen. Is that everybody, good and bad, will rise from the dead and there will be a reckoning at that point. And that leads us into Matthew 25. Then all nations will be arranged before him and he will sort, out, sort the people out. Much as a shepherd sorts out sheep and goats, putting sheep to his right and goats to his left. Let's talk through the idea of nations for a minute, okay? The nations. Wilda Gaffney, who I had the opportunity to meet at Evolving Faith. She was a fantastic scholar. In the gospel, the separation of the sheep and goats are by nation rather than individual. Contrary to Western understandings of individual salvation, salvation in the Hebrew scriptures is corporate and it is national. What might it mean for our individual salvation to be dependent on the judgment of our community, our nation, rather than our own or our faith, as so often preached in the Protestant tradition? How do you think America would be judged? Would we be judged? I'm going to get a little messy right here. So come, come with me and that's okay. If you can't, that's okay too. But it's, I'm going to get messy for about two sentences and let it lie. Okay? Would we be judged for drag queen story hours for children? Or for ministers molesting children? That's right. That's right. That's right. Would we be judged for the safety we try to provide for our trans children and friends in a restroom? or razor wire along the border of Texas. And I'm going to let that lie. I'm just going to let it lie. Take it for as you will. In the New Interpreter's Bible, the writer says, this is the only scene with any details picturing the last judgment in the New Testament. To the reader's surprise, ancient and modern, the criterion of judgment is not confessions of faith in Christ, 
Nothing is said of grace here, justification or the forgiveness of sins. What counts is whether one has acted with loving care for needy people. Such deeds are not a matter of, quote, extra credit, unquote, but constitute the derision, the decisive criterion of judgment presupposed in all chapters of Matthew 23 through 25. The work of the gospel is what Christ did with and for the least of these, and it is salvific. It is saving. I don't know about you, but I was never taught that, ever, that this is a mark of your salvation. I was taught a lot of things were a mark of my salvation, but this wasn't one of them. This was a good thing to do. This was extra credit. This was a side thing. That's not what Matthew says. This is not a public profession of faith. This is not demanding that the Ten Commandments be posted in public schools, not enmeshing my entire identity into a political party and saying of the other party, you cannot be a blank and be a Christian. I see that all over Twitter all the time. Both sides, all of it. You cannot be a blank and be a Christian. That's ridiculous. Stop it. Those things do not save us. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a preacher and scholar, Alistair Begg. He's a little bit more on the conservative side. Really wonderful human being. There's good things about him. Been doing this whole God thing, preaching thing for a lot of years. He shared a few weeks ago that he had a grandmother come to him and said that uh, she had a, a gay grandchild that was getting married and she did not think that that was right and she wanted to know should she go to the wedding or not. And he counseled her, go to the wedding. Go to the wedding. That's your grandchild. You go to the wedding. He has been crucified on Twitter from every Theo bro out there. It has been a bloodbath. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're kidding. That's her grandchild. What's wrong with you? Those responses by the Theo bros, don't go to the wedding. That is not salvific. That is not salvation. The work of the gospel is finding those hanging on to the margins by their bloody fingernails and then helping them. That lies. Therein lies our salvation, what we do for the least of these. This is the narrow way that Jesus speaks of. The narrow way is not, oh, I don't watch those movies. That's not the narrow way. The narrow way is not... I don't drink and I don't smoke and I don't do all those things that other people do. That's not the narrow way. Those are personal choices. They're not bad, but that's not the narrow way. That's the, the narrow way is choosing Matthew 25. If this is how I'm going to live my life, that I will see the least of these and I will help. Because let me tell you something, that's the hard thing to do. It ain't that hard to do some of these other things we've said are the narrow way. It's just not. This is hard. Next time you're at a red light and you see someone standing there asking for money for food, count how many people stop and help. Because the broad way is way much easier in that situation because we can say and puff our chest, she'll just use it for drugs and drive right on. I, I'm not gonna, I'll give it to somebody that I know deserves it. 
The narrow way says, hey, I have some bottled water and Gatorade in my car. And as a matter of, of a point of, someone told me that works directly with people uh, that are unsheltered on our streets, said always keep a case of water or Gatorade in your car. You ain't got a dime to your name, hand them some freaking Gatorade, especially in the summertime. The narrow way says, look at all this change in my console. I didn't even know it was there. Here. I know that there's some of you in this room that go the extra mile when it comes to unsheltered people. And man, are you my heroes. That's the narrow way. Socrates believed in the immortality of the soul, and later Christians will develop that view as well, that the soul never dies. And if the soul never dies, then there must be everlasting reward or everlasting punishment. Socrates also believed that death would be one of two things. One, either it will be the longest, best sleep we've ever had, or it will be a conscious existence carrying on with life with none of the pain. And so for the Greeks, death was not something terrible or to fear because either of those don't sound that bad. Jesus believed in a bodily resurrection, not just our soul, life here on earth. He didn't teach eternal bliss for souls and he didn't teach hell as a place of eternal torment. He teaches in Matthew 5 that anyone who calls another person a fool or allows their right eye to sin to be cast into hell. And the word, every time Jesus uses the word hell, he's saying Gehenna. Gehenna. That was an actual place. Now contrary to popular belief, a lot of us have been taught that that was a garbage heap that really smelled and burned all the time. There's no evidence that that actually happened. There's no evidence that that was actually a thing. But there is evidence that it was a place where the ancient Israelites had sacrificed their children on this pile because the other gods told them to. Yeah. This desecrated valley represented the polar opposite of what was on the heights right above it, the temple of God dedicated to Yahweh, where God himself was believed to dwell in the Holy of Holies. Gehenna, by contrast, was the place of cruelty and nefarious practices connected with a pagan divine enemy of the God of Israel. Literally, an unholy and blasphemous place. This was Gehenna. Jesus said that those excluded from the kingdom would be unceremoniously tossed into the most desecrated dumping ground on the planet. He did not say souls would be tortured there. They simply would no longer exist. This passage speaks of nations being like sheep or goats, and if they do not help those on the margins, there's judgment waiting. And that's hard for me to wrap my head around. And I don't know how that would look. I just don't know. Here's what I do know. These verses do not say that we are to make our nations Christians by any means necessary. That is not what it is saying. And if we don't make our, Christ, make our nation a Christian nation, we'll pay a price for it. That's not what it's saying. Jesus does not call us to make our nation Christian. But I do believe that He calls us, calls those of us who are believers to help our nation see the marginalized, the poor, and the oppressed. 
You know what? This, this movement of Christian nationalism would be a whole different thing if those groups were advocating for feeding the hungry or making our water clean, not just for us, but for underserved nations too. It might be a whole different thing if they were advocating for humane shelters for unhoused people, for job training, mental health resources, health care, and dentistry. If they were hollering for all people to have access to good health care, for mental health access, and shouting out for justice for the wrongly imprisoned, and mercy for the ones who deserve to be there. But I cannot be behind a movement that demands our unsheltered friends just get a job. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, and so should you. I cannot get behind a movement that screams that we should have prayer in our schools, but refuses to try and find ways to offer free lunch for all children. I cannot get behind a movement that shelters, protects, and even reveres the abusers, while the abused suffer from addictions, mental health issues, and, quote, her skirt was too short, quote, bull hockey. I cannot get behind a movement they can only shout what they are against rather than what they are for. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was homeless and you gave me a room. I was shivering and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you stopped to visit. I was in prison and you came to me. You will answer them, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you failed to do one of these things to someone who was being overlooked or ignored, that was me. You failed to do it to me. Will you pray with me? God, give us a heart that is willing to be broken by the people around us that suffer. Help us not to walk right by it and pretend we didn't see it. Give us clear eyes, vision, God. Give us vision to see. Because we need it, God. We need it. 